The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. This morning's text is found in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 36. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. I have a title for this sermon, and you know, those titles usually go online, and most of the time I don't think the people here even see them. But uh, I have a title. My title is Be Merciful Like Your Heavenly Father. And, and I am simply restating verse 36. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And let me explain why I included verse 36 in this passage from 37 on, on down, unlike the ESV pa- cha- uh, paragraph breaks, you know, so I'm, I'm pulling verse 36 into this because verse 36 kind of functions like a hinge. It, uh, it's the ground for the commands that came before, and it's also the ground, the reason for the commands that come afterwards. So I'm pulling it in here. So the four commands we're going to look at this morning are judge not... Condemn not, forgive, and give. And what I'm seeing here is those flow from the fact that by the gospel of Christ, we have come to know God the Father not only as merciful to all people, which he is, he sends rain on the evil and on the good, but also particularly great in his mercy toward us in Christ, in giving us not what we deserve, but graciously giving us himself by the death of Christ. So it's no surprise that the New Testament uses these kinds of phrases to talk about God's mercy. Here's, here's uh, Peter in the beginning of his epistle. Uh, he praises God for God's great mercy whereby he caused us to be born again. God's mercy is great toward us who are in Christ. And then Paul in Ephesians 2, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us has made us alive. Just God is great in his mercy toward us in Christ. And so if you ask me now, okay, that's your title. What's your aim? Here's my aim. My aim is that you and I be changed from inside out by the power of the gospel, the Spirit of God and the Word of God, 
that we might be transformed as those who receive God's mercy and thereby become more merciful people because of the mercy that we've received. So let me pray. Father in heaven, make it so. I I believe that's Jesus' intention here. It's what he says. That we might become merciful like you are, Father. So do it, I pray, by the power of the word of Christ here and by the working of your spirit all through the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is the third sermon now on what is called the Sermon on the Plain. That sounds really strange. Sermon on the Plain. And it's called the Sermon on the Plain because verse 17 says Jesus is in a level place, a, a plain, and that phrase distinguishes it from Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. A longer version. There's a lot of overlap of uh, Jesus' teaching. But this Sermon on the Plain began in verse 17 and it'll, it'll, it'll end at the end of chapter 6. And we'll be on it uh, for a couple more weeks after today. Let me give you a little review of where we've been. So two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Ken Curry spoke on the first part of the Sermon on the Plain, the Beatitudes uh, and their accompanying woes. And then uh, last week, Andrew Ballard, who works with our youth, uh, spoke on the next unit about loving your enemies. Let me just, just review those quickly. So, the sermon began with, with the Beatitudes, along with their accompanying woes, where Jesus is assuring his disciples that with the arrival of his kingdom, they are blessed now, and they will be blessed forever when he comes again to consummate his kingdom. So there's, a, there's both an already and a not yet in these Beatitudes. Um, let me just do, do them very quickly. So, so Jesus says to them, to his disciples, remember there's a great crowd, he's particularly addressing his disciples, but everybody's listening in, says to the disciples, though, though you're poor now in the kingdom of this world, you are blessed right now because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Right now, yours is the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to say, woe, a little further down, I'm just pulling the blessings and the woes together. He says, woe, the word woe means like sorrowful or you're going to have misery. It's a word of warning. Woe to those who have worldly riches now and have no treasure in heaven. So that's the first of the Beatitudes with the woes. The second one is, um, though they are hungry now in this kingdom of this world, they are blessed because the time will come when every good yearning, every good desire that they have will be fulfilled when Jesus comes with the coming kingdom, in the consummation of the kingdom. But woe to those who are full now with the things of this life because they will be hungry and empty forever. So there's a real eternal perspective going on in these beatitudes. Though they weep and mourn now because things are not the way they ought to be because of sin and unbelief, Jesus says, They're blessed now because the time will come when they will not only be comforted, but they will laugh and rejoice in the kingdom of God forever. And then the word of woe in verse 25 is, Woe to those who laugh now because they will weep and mourn and gnash their teeth 
forever. And then the fourth of the Beatitudes. And this is so fitting given Pastor Brad's word about the global partner who's been imprisoned for the last 10 months. And though now in the kingdom of this world, on account of Jesus, his followers, his disciples, are despised and persecuted and marginalized and reviled and slandered as evil people, Jesus says, you're blessed. You can leap for joy because the day will come when you will have great reward in heaven. But woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So there's the beatitudes with the woes. That's where the Sermon on the Plain begins. And so it's really clear that that there's a blessing now that the disciples have the kingdom of heaven, and yet the other three blessednesses will be consummated when Jesus comes again to establish his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we live, we believers, disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, we live as in between these two kingdoms. We, we're here in this kingdom of this world, and at the same time we belong to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ, over which Christ reigns. And until he comes again and consummates his kingdom and does away with this kingdom of this world, we live as strangers and aliens. It's a biblical phrase. I think it's four times in the New Testament. We live as strangers and aliens here in this world. Do you ever feel like things that are going on in this world are out of sync, out of whack? Well, they are. They're out of whack with the kingdom of Christ. So then the question is, well, okay, if that's the kingdom of heaven that we belong to, and we live by faith in these promises of the consummation coming, and people are going to despise us and persecute us and marginalize us and revile us and slander us as evil falsely, how do we live? Jesus goes right to it. Last week's text and message, Jesus says four things. Number one, love your enemies. Number two, do good to those who hate you. Number three, bless those who curse you. Number four, pray for those who abuse you. You <laughs> think, okay, Jesus. Jesus, who in the world does that? <laughs> right? And Jesus answers right here in the text. God does. God does that all the time. That's who. For God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Verse 35. Matthew's parallel passage says this, Matthew 5:45. For God makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends his reign on the just and on the unjust. It's mercy. Therefore, Jesus says, you be merciful, even as your father is merciful. <laughs> by loving your enemies, by doing good to those who hate you, by blessing those who curse you, and by praying for those who abuse you. 
And then he adds, and your reward, your reward will be great, for you'll be called sons of your Father who is in heaven. By the mercy that you show, you'll bring glory to him. So there you go. That's where we've been so far in the Sermon on the Plain. And now what I want to add to that is just these next four commands in verses 37 and 38. Again, flowing from this verse uh, 37, excuse me, 36. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Jesus continues. How ought we to live? How do we do that? Four commands. Number one, verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. It's ironic that, that, that I mean, lots of people know that verse, that that verse is, is used as a judgment on people who are exercising judgment. You know, you get the irony. <laughs> like, hey, the Bible says don't judge, so don't do that. You're wrong. You shouldn't, you know, it's just backwards. It's like, but Jesus is not teaching that we should not have wise judgments. He's not teaching against moral discernment of good and evil. In fact, uh, in verse 43, a little further down in the passage, he calls us to judge teachers by their fruits. And we know from elsewhere in the Bible, we're to, to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. So Jesus is not doing away with all judgments. He's not doing away with all, you know, parents have to judge all the time, supervisors have to judge employees. Law courts have to make judgments all the time, and we count on them to do that. And in church discipline, we have to judge. And in everyday life, we, we wouldn't function if we didn't make judgments. So what, what's Jesus getting at here? And I saw a clue here. The same word is used in 1 Corinthians 2.2. And here's the setting. Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he's telling them what was in his mind when he came to Corinth. Here's what he says. And, and the ESV uses the word decided. It's the same word as the word judge here. Uh, I'll, I'll say it as judged. So Paul says, look, when I, when I came to Corinth, I judged to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So isn't that interesting? Paul decided ahead of time to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified when he pulled into Corinth and everything that happened there, he was, he was gonna just be focused on Jesus and him crucified. He had a predisposition to focus on Jesus. Well, pull that into this and what Jesus is prohibiting here is having a predisposition of judgment, fault-finding, a critical spirit, a judgmental attitude. And it's a present tense command, meaning that his hearers are probably already doing this, and they, they ought to stop it and keep not doing that. So it's, it's, a, it's this critical attitude that Jesus is getting in of judgment. Several times I've heard one of our church planters, Tim Kane, he's pastoring Kaleo Church in El Cajon, 
California, just outside of San Diego, talk about when he worked as a waiter. He said on Sundays, and only on Sundays, that his manager would gather all the waiters together and he would talk to them before the lunch rush, Sunday lunch rush. And he said this, something like this, you know, it's Sunday, and after church, uh, the rush is going to come in from the church people. And those people will be the most demanding and most critical customers we have ever had all week. Their tips will be meager. And I want you to serve them despite their critical demeanor, just as you would serve anyone else. Think about it. If that's how I act toward my waiter right after church, or if I treat my wife with a critical spirit Sunday afternoon, or my children, it's likely owing to the fact that I have a perverted and twisted view of who God really is. It's some kind of an idol that God is judgmental and condemning and unforgiving and stingy. I must not be worshiping the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who is great in his mercy to us in Christ. So Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged. Doesn't fit people who have received the mercy of God. It's out of sync. Second command is very parallel to the first. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. So, if you worship the God of the gospel, you know God to be totally different from that judging, condemning God. Because at the cross, this is the heart of the gospel, at the cross, by the death of Jesus, God did two things, two big things. He demonstrated his justice. He satisfied his justice in that for all of us who are in Christ, Jesus took on our guilt, our penalty, and Jesus died for us. God's justice was satisfied. And the second thing that happens at the cross is God's love is displayed in that Christ, for us who are totally undeserving, this is mercy, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, paid for our sins, and unleashed the love of God into our lives such that not only are we reconciled and forgiven, but God gives us all that he is and all that he promises to be himself forever. So if we worship that God, the God of the gospel, we will not condemn other people, right? Because we know there is now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. 
We're no longer under condemnation. We're no longer under God's wrath. We have the gift of forgiveness and reconciliation and all that God promises to be for us in Christ. So Jesus says, condemn not. We are not to take upon ourselves the place of God by eagerly condemning other people because God has remove the condemnation that he had on us. There's a coherence here. God, it's God's job to judge. And the time is coming and he will turn over that role to Jesus and Jesus will judge the living and the dead, all people once and for all. But that time is not now. God is in this mode of patience not willing that any should perish. So, our, dis- our disposition is to be not one of condemning, but one of mercy. You might think, well, h- how would we condemn somebody? We- I mean, we don't have the authority to damn someone. We do it in in ways of, in forms of what I would call vengeful punishments. Vengeful punishments. Like what? I mean, there's all kinds of things. How about, I mean, I've known people who have done what I call like personal excommunication. Like, so you are excommunicating that person from your life and family because you think they hurt you or you didn't like what they did. So like, I mean, the Bible doesn't have a category for personal excommunications of other people. Bring it to the church, run it through the process, and then the way that gets acted out today is, there's a phrase, ghosting. I didn't know what this word was till more recently. You can exert your condemnation on somebody by acting as if they don't even exist anymore. You're so disgusting, I'm not even going to, I'm going to walk by you in the grocery store and not even look at you. I'm not going to call you anymore. I'm not going to pay any attention. You're in, like, my own conceived hell. You're out, out. Or other forms of punishing people who might disappoint or even hurt you. Jesus says, condemn not and you will not be condemned, but be merciful. I love it, Exodus 34, you know, when Moses says to God, show me your glory. (laughs) And God says, look, I can't show you my full-blown glory. You'll die. It'll kill you. But I'll let you see my backside. (laughs) And remember, God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and God passes by with these declarations from the heavens and Moses gets a peek at the backside of God and you know what the first words are? The Lord, the Lord. A God gracious and merciful, slow to anger. God says, that's who I am. That's who I am. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. John three seventeen, Jesus makes it clear. God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world, 
but in order that the world might be saved through him. So, if, if I, a sinner, have God's undeserved grace in Christ, and I've been rescued from the judgment that was due me as a sinner by the mercy of God in Christ, how dare I condemn other people? It's out of sync. It suggests I don't know the promise of the gospel that I claim to know, or I've not experienced it. Third command, forgive. Forgive and you will be forgiven, verse 37. You know, if you were to ask me one word that would summarize the impact of the grace of God upon us, his people, on our relationships with one another, I think I'd pick the same word that you would. What would be the word? The impact of the grace of God on us in our relationships with one another, love. Word number one. But what would be word number two? For me, maybe for you, it would be forgive. What marks the people of God in their relationships with other people? Love and forgiveness, because that echoes the gospel, the love of God that we've received, and the forgiveness from God that we've received. The, the commands are many. The instructions are many. Colossians 3.13 as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. Now, our forgiveness from God, there's an objection out there um, that our forgiveness of other people makes light of Sin and guilt, and lets uh, perpetrators get away with offenses. Well, the forgiveness of God does not make light of our sin in that it costs the Son of God his life to secure our forgiveness. So don't fall for that. Um, there, there are there are, how do I say this? It's so interesting these days because when something horrible happens and, and a Christian's involved and the Christian steps up to say, by the grace of God, I forgive you, person who did this to me. The mockery starts. Uh, secular people will mock that and say, that's stupid. He's just letting the guy get away with it. And even Christians are piling on that. Well, you're not supposed to forgive that. And I'm telling you, that is not true. That's a false teaching. It's creeping into the church. I mean, church history is full of people suffering terrible wrongs and forgiving. I mean, you don't need me to tell you. Jesus, Father, forgive them. 
Stephen, Father, forgive them. Elizabeth Elliot and the wives of the other four missionaries who go back to the Alka Indians, forgive them and bring the gospel to them. The, this was uh, a few years ago, this, this shooter came to the prayer meeting at Mother Emanuel Church in, in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and he killed, I can't remember, half a dozen or more people. And the people from the church and the pastor whose wife was killed spoke forgiveness. People mock that. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, this is biblical Christianity, and it does not mean a, a miscarriage of justice. It's not it. Christ died for this, and it doesn't mean there's no legal process. It doesn't mean forget it. It means terrible wrong has been done. And it needs to proceed through the courts. And in my heart, it needs to proceed in a way that's Christian. I'm going to recommend a book. Um, Tim Keller, you know, passed away recently, longtime pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. I really think he gave us a, a gift last fall with the release of a book called Forgive in 2022. Because he's speaking right in our current context when people are speaking against forgiveness as bad and stupid and, you know, whatever, encourages wrong. And he he writes this book. It's a very good book. I've listened to it one and a half times. I've read it and listened to it one and a half times now. And he's seeking to recover biblical forgiveness. And he's trying to answer all the modern-day objections, which are probably not modern at all. They're just human I want to read two, two quotes from his book. One is, he, he pulls together in a succinct fashion various teachings of, the, teachings of the Bible to say, here's what biblical forgiveness is, in a nutshell. I'm going to read that for you first. He says, to forgive then is first to name the trespass truthfully as wrong and punishable rather than merely excusing it. Second, it is to identify with the perpetrator as a fellow sinner rather than thinking how different from you he or she is. It is to will their good. Third, it is to release the wrongdoer from liability by absorbing the debt yourself rather than seeking revenge and paying them back. And finally, it is to aim for reconciliation rather than breaking off the relationship forever. If you omit any of these four actions, you are not engaging in real forgiveness, according to the scriptures. And right there, let me give you one more quote from the book because... You might, I want to make sure you don't think that forgiveness prohibits consequences, legal consequences, church discipline consequences, um, consequences in life. It, It does not let the offender off with a pat on the back. 
Here's, here's, this is the powerful illustration in the book. You know Rachel Den Hollander, I think, and if you don't remember her, let me remind you. She was the first former U.S. Olympic gymnast to publicly accuse the USA gymnastics physician Larry Nasser of sexual assault. And you know the story. Horrific, horrific, horrific story. She had a chance to speak at his trial. And uh, speak she did, standing firmly in this biblical Christian theology of the cross and forgiveness. So imagine. I mean, so she was the first to publicly accuse him. Hundreds of young women have accused him at this point. At the trial, she looks at Larry Nasser and she's, she says this. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Off he went to jail, probably not to see the light of day again. That's forgiveness. Biblical forgiveness. So, you catch where we are. We're living in this world, citizens of another kingdom. Jesus calls us to love our enemies. And the passage we're in, he's calling us to uh, not to judge, not to condemn, to forgive. I'm just thinking, I'll tell you where my brain went. My brain went to our global partner. To forgive. And then Jesus adds this. Fourth. Give. I'll read the passage. Verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. It's, a, it's, an, it's an illustration. It's an image of, of uh, like a merchant giving you like a bunch of grain. Let's say it's a bunch of grain, like wheat. And you have your little clothing, you know, you kind of pull up your clothing to carry the, the, the grain, and this merchant fills it up, and we shake it a little more to get some more in, and shake it more, and it's just overflowing. Saying. Give like that. In the context that you're in, disciples, followers of Jesus, be a giving person. Over the top, generous. Why? Because that's how God is. I thought of a, a time when I thought a merchant, like I, I remember a time when I, I felt that from a merchant. Yeah, my wife and I, maybe you know this ice cream shop, went to buy ice cream at an ice cream shop near Stillwater. And... Uh, we each purchased an ice cream cone, and 
Kathy, having heard of the generous, generous portions at this ice cream shop, she ordered a kid's cone. I think it might have been called a baby cone. So she, I go up to the counter and say, well, I'll take one baby cone. And, you know, I'm too proud to do that. And so I, I, just, I ordered an adult cone, right, <laughs> going against her better judgment. And, and I got this thing. I mean, I can't even show you how big it was. I got this big ice cream cone, you know, I don't know, kind of like this, huge, gigantic. And I, I couldn't eat it all. It was supersized. And, and Jesus is saying, give like that. God gives like that, his mercy, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing. Be a giving person with your time and energy and love and mercy. So there it is. There's the, the picture here in the Sermon on the Plain. I'll pick up the rest of it next week. We're going to go to the communion table. And we need the Spirit to search our hearts. Two, two things I have in mind. You know, every time we, we go to the Lord's table, we, we do what we call fence the table. What we mean by that is um, make sure that people have an understanding of who the elements are for and who the elements aren't for. And so I'll say it this way today. Um, ask God to, to give you a clear sense of your sin and God's mercy in Christ. And so, if you don't have any conception of your sin, like, what do we need forgiveness for? I, I mean, I make a couple of mistakes, but I don't need forgiveness. People talk like that. Then don't partake of the elements. Because the elements are for sinners who need God's mercy. Which brings me to the next category. If you know you're a sinner, and yet you say to yourself, um, my sin is so bad, I don't think God can forgive me. And I hope by, by some of these verses I've held out to you. God's mercy being great, his justice being satisfied in the death of Christ, his love being unleashed on all who come to him in faith, faith in Christ. I pray that God would overcome your sense that you are a sinner. No, not overcome that. You are a sinner, but overcome your sense that he won't forgive you. He will forgive you. It's mercy. It's grace. You don't deserve it. That's right. And then if you just know you're a sinner and you know you need God's forgiveness, and his mercy, the table is yours. So, one, two, I guess two things before I pray. Remember as we pass the elements to, to take both cups, they're double cupped with the bread at the bottom of the cup, the juice cup. And then hold the elements we'll eat and drink together. Let me pray. So, Father in heaven, I do praise you for your great mercy, your lavish mercy toward us in Christ, that we, we have sinned and fallen short of your glory, and yet you have 
saved us from your wrath and your judgment and your condemnation and poured out your love and forgiveness and grace upon us. And you pursue us now with mercy all the days of our lives. And so I pray that as people who receive these elements representing the death of Christ for us, that you'd send us out as merciful people, reflecting the mercy that you have shown to us, to those around us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.